Right, so we're going to be starting a new series today. This one is going to be called Let My People Go, thanks to the uh, suggestion of my beautiful wife, because she gives me lots of good suggestions, and sometimes I don't take her up on it, but this one I'm taking up on. And I'll just say it's, some, it's not, a, it's a first in a while, but. But it's okay. This time she had better wisdom. Anyway, so we're going to be doing a series on the first 14 chapters of Exodus. Uh, Of course, like I said, the topic will be let my people go. And we know that this is going to pertain to the life of Moses, right? Very good. That was a quick test. Um, We're going to be studying different nuances to not just Moses' life, but the situation in which he was called to be a servant. So really what this topic is going to be about is it's what does ministry look like? What should ministry look like? Who should be the recipient of the ministry? Um, and, and what is going to be the, the source of our strength in this ministry? And so today we're going to be looking at a, a topic that's not very... Uh, Encouraging and not very uplifting, but I want to talk about oppression today, and and hopefully uh, we I don't leave you in oppression by the time we dismiss. But I'll tell you this: uh, depression is something that, of course, I have struggled with off and on for a long time, and um, I've learned how to fight it. I have learned how to recognize it. I've learned to identify what my triggers are so that when I get into a, a little bit of a funk, I know how I got there or at least how it developed. And I'll say that last night working on this, I was real excited. I'm like, yay, oppression. I can't wait to talk about oppression today. This is going to be awesome. And then I got up this morning and in one of those, those, those tough times. And so right now, I really don't feel too encouraged to talk about oppression, (laughs) but I think that maybe that's why I might be a good qualified person to talk about it. The background information, as Don has read for us in in chapter 1 of Exodus, now this is a transition. Now, uh, a lot of the, the things I've been studying have indicated that really Exodus should not be seen as a separate book, but as a, uh, a sequel. Uh, and actually, if you go to the actual Hebrew, the very first word of chapter 1, verse 1 is and. And so all through the book of Genesis, you get this establishment of Israel as a people in relationship to God. And then when we shift into Exodus, it should say, and here's the rest of the story. And so with that said, understand some of the nuances that have brought us to where we are. We know that at the end of Genesis that Joseph has been an amazing uh, plant in Egypt for the sake of the Israelis. Uh, uh, He went ahead because, remember, his brother sold him into slavery. He ended up in prison, but eventually he got established in the palace because of the dreams that he gave uh, and the blessing that God had put upon his life, putting him in the right place at the right time for the right reasons. And so Joseph was a very instrumental person in getting his people, his family, back into Egypt uh, and and reestablished with him in in relationship. 
And also during a time of famine that God had brought them there for their protection and for their provision. And this was a very instrumental time in the life of Israel in the, in the early development of that people group. And so when they got to Egypt, everything was going well. They were blessed. Joseph was highly favored by Pharaoh. And things were really developing well. But then it says in verse 6, the passage that we have for today, it says, Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all of that generation died. Again, not very uplifting, right? All of his brothers had died, even the youngest. That whole generation had died off, some 70, 80 years. We don't know uh, what a generation was then as compared to now. We know that uh, some of the, uh, the family members lived to 133 uh, descendants of, uh, direct descendants of uh, Moses. And so we're not real sure how long that was, but it was long enough that all of them have passed on. And there is no longer a remnant of that group. But it makes a very clear point here in verse 7. So that you're not completely left as a downer. It says in verse 7 that, as, uh, but as the Israelites were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, and they became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. So this is a very important verse before we get into some of the heavy stuff. Because what this verse does is it establishes something very unique to us, that God's word is dependable, that God's word is reliable, that God's promises you can take to the bank. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. He's never going to whitewash something that's dirty. He's never going to pat you on the back when he should be kicking you in the bottom. He's, he's faithful to you. He's going to be reliable. And in Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3, when he spoke to Abraham in the very beginning of this newfound relationship, he said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all of the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So I'm going to make you into a great nation Take it to the bank. I'm going to bless you and those around you through you. I'm going to be a blessing to them. Take that to the bank. And then in Genesis 15, 5, he he comes to a, a second portion of the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, it says that God took him outside and said to him, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. So God has established with Abraham for generations to come that I'm going to create a people for me. I'm going to be in relation with them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to nurture them, protect them, guide them, love them. And I want them to do the same to me in response. And this is a fulfillment. In Exodus chapter 1, this says God has carried through with his promise. Israel has grown tremendously. They have been blessed tremendously. But this is a problem because not everybody's going to be celebrating. Not everybody's going to be clapping their hands. This new Pharaoh, this new king, it says, did not know about Joseph. 
He didn't know how the Israelites necessarily got there, how they developed into the mighty nation that they became. He didn't know these things. The only thing that he knew is there's a whole lot of people here, and at any given moment, if I mistreat them, if I don't do the right thing, they could revolt against me. So this is a problem. If they ever were to get together and, and create a collective army against us, we're going to have our hands full. So he decided with the help of his, his cabinet that we need to do something about this so that they don't continue to grow like they are. In other words, this oppression that's coming to Israel was motivated by fear. By fear. The scriptures say um, in verse 10, Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies. They will fight against us, and they will leave the country. Now, oppression is uh, an interesting thing here. Um, Well, let me read a couple more verses first. So in verse 11, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. All their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. That's pretty harsh circumstances, pretty harsh situations. Now, before I get into some of these, these, it's going to seem monotonous a little bit, but I think it's very important to paint a picture of what oppression looks like because we have our impressions. We have our images of what oppression looks like. We think of slavery, for example, over the last several hundred years, uh, which has ended but yet continues to show mistreatment to a particular race of people. Uh, At least that's in our country. There are other people groups being uh, put in slavery in other groups or other nations and parts of the world. So we think of that. We think about, you know, 200 years ago, the stories that we've read uh, of of how uh, African Americans were treated in our country, how the slave owners abused them, uh, how they would cut things off of their bodies so they couldn't run away, that they couldn't hear, that they couldn't uh, use their hands effectively. All of this to manipulate and to control uh, so you maybe you've heard of stories like that, perhaps uh, the, the, the sex tr- uh, slave trade, um, and you've heard how these young girls are being uh, kidnapped off of the streets and put into situations that no little girl should ever be put into. Um, perhaps you're thinking of an abusive parent or an abusive spouse that, uh, that, that hurls verbal insults at you and, and cursings at you on a regular basis and perhaps physically assault you on a regular basis. Perhaps that's what comes to mind when you think of oppression. Perhaps it's a person you work for that doesn't let you have a day off, that every time you uh, start to slack a little bit because you're tired, they they deal with you ruthlessly. Uh, Not sure exactly what it looks like for you. Uh, And I find that there's a little bit of a disconnect between New Testament and Old Testament. But let's look at some of these words. In, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there's basically four words that can be translated oppressed. Now check these out. The first one is lakatz, which means to distress. And that is basically to put another person in a situation that they are completely 
and utterly distressed to where they can't rest. They can't calm down. There is no peace. They can't live with themselves, and, and they're just absolutely miserable. There's a second word, oshek, which means oppression or extortion. Uh, for example, in 2 Kings 21.16, it says Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end with innocent blood. Besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they would do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The third Hebrew word is tok, which means injury. So to put them in a situation that provokes and makes it highly risky for injury to occur. The fourth word is uh, marutza, which means a crushing oppression or violence. So to put them in a situation where violence is ongoing and there's a constant fear that more violence could be coming. That would be the Hebrew definition of oppression. And that would match what Exodus is saying about the Egyptians and the Israelis. In the New Testament, there's a few other words. Uh, the first one is kata dunesteo, which means from kata, ill, and dunesto, to rule. So it means to rule with illness or with ill intent. It means to tyrannize or to oppress harshly. In Acts 10.38, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. That's the use of that word. In James 2.6, but you have insulted the poor. It is not the rich. Oh, he said, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? So exploitation and, and, uh, and insult. Another word, kataponeo, which means to, to have ill, labor, pain, and toil. In Acts 7.24, Moses was 40 years old. He decided to visit his fellow Israelites, and he saw that one of them was being mistreated by an Egyptian. And so he went to his defense, and he avenged him by killing the Egyptian. And in 2 Peter 2.7, it says, And if... Uh, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. And you can fill in the rest there. I want to get through these a little bit quicker. Uh, kekosis, which means bad or evil intent, to harm or to do evil to someone, to ill-treat, to plague them, to injure them, to put one in a bad mood against another. That comes from Acts 14.2. So if you, as a habit, or just for kicks like to ruin somebody's day and just put them in a bad mood, you're an oppressor, all right? So that's thin, thin line, but I see that happen all the time. So the point is, we can relate to these things, right? Um, there's a couple other verses, uh, but anyway. Uh, the last one is the word bereo, which means to burden, to load, or to weigh down. Kind of like we talk about the weight of sin upon us and how when we repent, God lifts the weight of sin off of us. So, bereo is also very important. Uh, in the passive use of the word, it means to be oppressed, to be weighed down with affliction or calamity. And an example is the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when they kept falling asleep because their eyes were heavy. That's a, a wimpy version of that, but think about it in its most abusive form. So, all of this is very important, and this was Egypt's intent. This is how we're going to handle the population problem. 
And this is how we're going to control the population of Israel. We're going to oppress them. We're going to abuse them. We're going to treat them so harshly that they just give up and die. We're going to wear them out so much that they no longer have the desire to procreate. That may take a lot of doing. It may not take any doing at all. Who knows? But uh, that, was the, that was the plan. We're going to treat them so harshly that, and create the environment so harshly that they don't even want their children being raised in this environment. Now, let me pause for just a moment and say this. Uh, a year ago or so, I did a series on demons. And one of the things that demons do is they oppress spiritually people like us. They oppress us with anxiety and depression. They oppress us with fear. Uh, they love to control us and to control our spiritual climate. And so it's very possible that they will want to create an atmosphere that is so unhealthy that nobody wants to go to church. Demons are very good at what they do. They're going to create an environment that is so disruptive and so uh, antagonistic that people are going to think to themselves, you know what, I really don't want to bring children into this world. Now, I don't know if you've thought that, but I've heard many people say that, and I've actually had those thoughts myself when we were thinking about having kids. Do I really want a child to be raised in this environment, to go through this school system or any other school system that's public use? Do I really want to bring them into this and, and to just let the devil have his way with them? Uh, that definitely should be a consideration for all every parent. And so that is why this is such an important topic. Uh, Pharaoh is going to use oppression to control and to, to just destroy these Israeli people. But isn't it interesting that the opposite effect happened? That in the, even in the presence of oppression, that they continued to multiply they continued to grow. Another form of the oppression comes in the verse 16. It says, and when you help the he he's talking to the midwives, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill the child. If it's a girl, let them live. And then later in the verse 23 or 22, it says, uh, if a boy is born, throw them into the Nile but let every girl survive. So another aspect of, um, of oppression. The problem is, is this goes completely against God's plan, his desire, and his promise for their lives. And, and Pharaoh is going to go completely and totally against it. But there's one little verse that is troubling to me. If we go back to Genesis 15, and in light of this oppression, and I'm going to get into a list, a short list of reasons why oppression occurs. But if you go back to Genesis 15, it says in verse 12, verse 13 rather, it says, well, one in 12, it says, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And in verse 13, then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. 
But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. This was several hundred years before it ever occurred. Before Joseph ever ended up as a slave in Egypt himself, God had called the shot. God said, this is going to happen. This is the plan. And just know this ahead of time, that you're going to be in severe oppression. And you're going to be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. So my question is this. Why did God allow them to be oppressed for 400 years? These were his children. These were the apple of his eye. These were people that he loved dearly. Why did God allow them to be oppressed? Yeah, it's, it's, it gives some comfort to know that he's going to discipline those who oppress them. But it gives very little comfort to know that God knew I was going to go through this oppression. And he allowed it to happen anyway. Well, let me look at this list here. These are just some of the reasons why it's possible that God may prescribe oppression for your life for just a season. The first one is for perseverance and the development of your faith. In James 1.12, it says that God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So he could use it as a teaching moment just to show you, uh, to, to help you to, to learn how to persevere because the fact is, is that he never had any intentions of withholding uh, any kind of suffering in any shape or form from us. Just because we're his beloved children, just because uh, he has favor or we have favor with him, that doesn't mean that, he's going, that we're going to be exempt from day-to-day stress. And so he does need to develop our perseverance, and he does need to develop our faith so that when those difficult times come, we know he is with us, and he will see us through, and that it will not be wasted. In Galatians 6, 9, it says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Well, why would we even want to give up? Because the oppression or the circumstance is so difficult that we're just not sure if we can make it beyond that particular test. In Hebrews 10, 35 and 36, it says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. A second reason is because of discipline. In Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, this is a good passage. Uh, and, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses a son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their fathers. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate 
Not true sons and daughters at all. Anyway, you could read more about that. But, but the, of course, the gist of it is, God disciplines those he loves. And if he doesn't discipline you, then he doesn't love you. Luckily, God disciplines all of us, right? And so it is possible that his discipline could come in the form of oppression. Perhaps an addiction. Perhaps that in your spiritual life, you're, you're thinking to God, God, you know what? I want to do drugs. I'm tired of people telling me I can't do them. I'm tired of people telling me they're illegal. I want to do drugs. So God, I'm going to do as many drugs as I can. And you're not going to do anything about it. God's discipline could oftentimes be this. All right, buddy, you got it. Have fun. And then you find yourself 10 years later addicted and living on the streets, uh, can't carry a job, nobody likes you, you're out of money, you're homeless. And God's like, this is what you asked for. I'm just giving you what you wanted. But God does discipline us. The third one is this, is sometimes we're oppressed in order to protect us from greater threats. This one's going to take a little bit of a stretch here. In Psalm 121, 5 through 8, it says, The Lord guards you. The Lord is the shade that protects you from the sun. The sun cannot hurt you during the day, and the moon cannot hurt you at night. The Lord will protect you from all dangers. He will guard your life. The Lord will guard you as you come and go, both now and forever. So is it possible that the Lord put you in slavery and oppression over here in order to protect you from something far worse that could be happening over here? Very possible, right? Um, in Genesis fifteen sixteen, we go back to, uh, to Genesis 15, and there's another interesting little phrase that says this, For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Is it possible that the Amorite people could be more oppressive than the Egyptians, more violent than the Egyptians? Instead of putting them in slavery and making them work for a living, is it possible that the Amorites just might kill them all? Just leave them in the ditches, man, woman, and child, and beast? Of course it's possible. That was normal back then. So maybe by God putting them in Egypt while they were growing and being blessed numerically and being uh, challenged and strengthened in their, in their resolve and in their perseverance and in their faith, maybe he was protecting against something that could completely wipe them off the face of the earth. Maybe he's doing the same thing in your life. Maybe while you're in a difficult marriage and, and you're struggling to, 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 to put a smile on your face, that he's really protecting you from something far worse over here if you weren't in that marriage. It's possible that in this job that you absolutely hate and are disgusted with and they keep making you work these long hours and making you clean grease off of stuff that just won't come off, they have you pulling weeds and, and, and getting sunburns that you're like, Lord, I hate this job. And the Lord's like, but you have no idea how bad it will be over here. So maybe he's protecting you from something else. A fourth reason is this, spiritual growth. In Romans 8, 28 through 29, it says, We know that in everything, God works for the good of those who love him. They are the people he called because that was his plan. God knew them before he made the world, and he chose them to be like his sons, so that Jesus would be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. 
So because God loves you so much, because he has a plan for you that is far bigger than anything you will ever devise or d- develop on your own, he is preparing you for that. And you have to go through the fires in order to get ready for that new thing that he's going to do in your life. He doesn't just hand out these huge blessing uh, ministries just because you asked for it. you got to work for it. He doesn't give you this great influence upon other people's lives just because uh, you know you had a hangnail one time. It's because you fell on your face and got up and fell on your face again and got up and fell on your face again and got up. Now you're qualified to help people who have a habit of falling on their face. And if you had never fallen on your face, then how's he going to use you? Why is he going to entrust these fallen people into your life if you've never struggled? There's a purpose behind this, and this is for your spiritual growth that you can learn to trust him in all situations. And as Paul said, celebrate him and have joy even in your suffering. But most of us aren't there yet. The fifth thing is this. It develops our character. I hate this part. I just, um, I know I don't have any character and I don't have any anticipation of ever having one. Um, Although my mother used to always tell me I was a character. Um, In Romans 5, 3 through 6, it says this, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So maybe he is bringing this oppression into our lives to develop our character. And number six is that maybe he does it so that we will have a greater reward. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our lights and monetary, momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And I just thought of another, which I think goes along with this. Think about in Acts when Paul is given the long list of sufferings that he's endured. He's been beaten this many times, shipwrecked this many times, imprisoned this many times. Long list of suffering that he's endured. That became his testimony. So that wherever he would go, they would say, oh, why would we listen to you? Who are you to talk to us? He'll say, let me tell you. This is what I've been through, all for the sake of Christ. This is what I have endured for the sake of Christ. And now I stand before you with a smile on my face and joy in my heart because of what I've endured. That's the God I worship. That's the God I serve and the God who's after your heart too. Yeah, now he has a testimony. That is his greater reward, a reward that he can pass on to others and a hope that he can give to people who have no hope, all because of what he endured. The seventh one is this. This is just being completely honest and transparent. Maybe it's because we just have no clue. Maybe because it really isn't ours to know. Maybe God just allows oppression from time to time because he has a a developed plan that we just can't grasp. 
And maybe what he's wanting us to do is just to trust him, that he knows what he's doing. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, you know, maybe it's possible that it's just not ours to know at this point. Maybe it's just ours to just say, okay, God, whatever you've got in mind, I'm good with it. Uh, work, work some miracles in me. And work some miracles through me for the sake of others. So here's the way I think we're supposed to interpret this. So this is why I think this is important. This is the world in which we live. There are people absolutely suffering everywhere. They're all around us and they're even in this church. So what are we supposed to do? This is our ministry. This is our ministry. Letting light shine through the brokenness of our own lives for the sake of those in darkness. We're supposed to care about others. We're supposed to genuinely want to help them. We're supposed to actually listen intently for the cries for help and then take that as, as an open door for us to go and to share the love of Christ to those people. And maybe if they're not ready to hear the love of Christ, the love of you. Maybe that's what they're after. Maybe they just want to know somebody cares about them. You know, it's, it's a surprising thing. I, I know that there were almost 45,000 murders and, or uh, suicides in the year 2016. I didn't get an accurate number because everybody disagrees, but it's probably escalated since then. 45,000 suicides in America in one particular year. This past week, famous baker, famous purse lady, um, I don't remember her name. Yes. I, I know Anthony Bourdain, but I don't know her, uh, which is okay. Um, but both of them... Both of them take their own lives, and everybody's like, we had no idea. We had no idea that they were so miserable. But there's a lot of miserable people around here. And most of the time, they have this attitude, nobody cares if I live or die. That's pretty messed up. And like I said, some of you might even be here in church today. How bad is that, that you go to church week after week and still have the feeling that nobody gives a rip if you were to live or die? Had a pastor that I knew down around St. Louis uh, was struggling with depression, and they admitted him into Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, and he checked in and uh, took his meds and found his way on an elevator where he went to the top of the hospital and jumped off. So even pastors can be at the end of the rope. This is a messed up world. And it's not going to get better. We, the scriptures tell us it's not going to get better. We have to be a solution to the problem. We have to care about as many people as we possibly can. We have to open up our lives to them. We have to talk to them. We have to pray for them. We have to, to love on them. We just have to act like Christ. And uh, there's no other alternative solution. 
So this particular series is going to be about what ministry is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to come together. I hope that you won't miss any of them because I think you need to know this information. Let's pray. Gracious Father, please continue to teach us and mold us and shape us and put your spirit in us and increase it within us so that we will have an increased effectiveness and an increased ministry among the hurting of this world. We pray, Lord, if there is anyone hurting in this place of worship today, I pray that your blanket of grace will fall upon them, that your healing touch will be in them, that your spirit will give them hope, that your spirit will transform them and change their minds and, and the way they think and process, but love them and, re- and convince them, Lord, of how deeply you love them, that you would send your only son into the world to die on the cross for them. And Father, I pray for the rest of us that you will just continue to stir our hearts with a desire to help alleviate the suffering of this world, whether it be in the prisons or the nursing homes or within our own church. I pray that you will put a conviction in us that is for us personally, that gives us permission and the authority to love in those particular situations in such a way as to give them hope and to help them persevere. Father, if we are in the midst of oppression, I pray that you will remind us that you are with us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. And that there is a purpose behind that suffering. And Lord, please help us just to hold on to dear life with the, on the hem of your garment. For that is where the strength and the healing comes from. And let us trust you every step of the way. For you're the only one in this universe that deserves that kind of trust. Father, move in us. Move for us. And move through us. In Christ we lovingly pray. Amen.